say what it is. The suffragettes yeah. were racist. Yes. You know, I mean, they kind of positioned votes for women as a way to avoid the system being overrun by black men or by working class white men. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tisay. Britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open. Welcome to Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. Really excited to be joined by Professor Alison Phipps. And we are in Sussex. I'm a little bit nervous because this is my first time doing the Alternative to Women's Hour without Saskia. Please be kind to me, Alison. Um, I think I'm good. I think I'll be all right with asking questions. You're amazing. Uh, You'll be great. <laughs> We're going to talk about your new book that's going to be coming out in 2020, Me, Not You. The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism. The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism. You got in contact with us about this book and I was just like, this is amazing. When me and Saskia first started the Alternative to Women's Hour, it was during the Me Too movement, mm. like, snap, basically. Like, people, when people were talking about it a lot. And we were just like, we find it difficult to fully immerse ourselves in it because it just doesn't feel like it's possibly talking to all of our experiences mm. as women. And you've literally written a book about why I had that feeling and why sometimes, like, even though I did, like, I tweeted, like, oh, hashtag me too, because, mm. yeah, like, my life is filled with, yeah, two decades of different instances of sexual harassment. Like, mm. that's been a very big part of my life. Like, I've not been um, shy about saying that on the podcast. There was something, it was always something very white about the movement, mm. very middle class, and still now to this day, I feel like that even though like the movement was put together initially by black women and women of colour. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for writing this book, first Aww. of all. Um, and like, I think it's going to speak to so many people, which the Meeting Movement didn't really do enough of, I think. And yeah, I guess I want to start by asking you, what made you think that I've got to do this book? Yeah, why? Why did I write it? I guess um, it sort of comes out of discomfort for me as well. Yeah not for the same reasons and obviously I am a privileged white woman so in some ways Me Too was speaking directly to me but I have had non-paradigm experiences of sexual violence mm -hmm. um, so my experiences never fully fit the mainstream narrative. I have political differences with a lot of the mainstream feminism around sexual violence, um, kind of at the extreme end, the sort of anti-sex worker, anti-trans stuff, but also I'd become more and more uncomfortable with the sort of naming and shaming methodology, mm. I suppose. Um, and um, that had started before Me Too, uh, mm. but Me Too kind of peaked that, and that was the key strategy of the movement, wasn't it? And I just remember thinking, this isn't right, this isn't gonna work this isn't the way to make a change um, and then kind of started writing um, and the book draws on bits and pieces that I've published before but it also draws on my kind of long experience as a sexual violence activist mm -hmm. um, and I suppose I have been in the mainstream of the movement really because I've been working on sexual violence in universities which is very sort of liberal feminist mm -hmm. mostly privileged white women because privileged white women dominate mm -hmm. Um, universities mm -hmm. but also because it's been linked to things like Athena Swan which mm -hmm. is also very white mm -hmm. um, so I guess I come out of the mainstream of the movement but I've always felt a little bit odd mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. um, and I decided to put that into words and in the process kind of drew on a lot of black feminism I mean I mean the book is grounded very much in black feminism mm -hmm. and other feminisms of color but black feminism mm -hmm 
first and foremost. Sorry, I just thought straight away when you were talking about the sort of naming and shaming methodology just then about the bit in the book. Oh, there will be a couple of spoilers, I guess. Yeah, um, but fine. not but not completely, guys. You still got to get the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so well written as well. And um, the naming and shaming. Your comparison the, to the naming and shaming of Arya Stark in uh, oh, the Game yeah. of Thrones <laughs> and how like she had this list yes. of all the men that had like mainly men, sorry, that have done wrong by her, and it's sort of you make that. Yeah, you know, equivalents that to yeah what happened with me too. And I was like, oh the God. kill list. Yeah, the kill list. <laughs> and it is, yeah, it definitely, definitely rings true. Yeah, and um, it's kind of um, I'm not. It's not a power grab consciously. No. I don't think, but I think subconsciously it might be. Mm-hmm. And I think we're living at a time where gender relations are being rethought. You know, mm-hmm. all this debate about gender ideology, identity politics, the backlash, uh, everything else. You know, women. There's a war on women, but there's also a big fight back. And I feel like some of this is privileged white women saying, now is our time. We're fucking furious. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they're fucking furious mm-hmm. as well. But I think that there is a certain will to power going on here. It's what um, Nancy Fraser and Tithi Bhattacharya mm-hmm. um, in their book call Equal Opportunity Domination. Um, so it's a kind of shift in who's wielding power rather than dismantling the power mm-hmm. itself. And that really, like, you give quite a few examples. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about some of them in this episode, but you give quite a few examples of the white women that are supposedly fighting for the rights of women who also are very much complicit in patriarchal Mm. um, dominance and power over the years. Like, like even the Linda Fernstein example that you gave. I didn't know. So, sorry, guys. Linda Fernstein was the woman who basically ensured that the Exonerated Five went to prison. So those being... If you've seen the four-part on Netflix when they mm. see us talking about the five black and Hispanic boys who were yeah wrongfully mm. convicted of rape and the woman that ensured that they basically fabricated evidence for them being put away mm. in defense Fairstein, I think. Um, yeah, Fairstein was. Know. Yeah, so she was at the forefront of that. But she was all. You talk about her also being part of the group of women who tried to stop Harvey Weinstein from. Yeah, I mean, she covered up. She some covered allegations, up some allegations. Helped cover up some allegations against that. Weinstein. Um, yeah, made by an Italian model, and she basically introduced his defense team mm. to the to the prosecutor that was handling the case I think yeah so I mean obviously she believes that accountability should be selective mm-hmm. um, and I think I say in the book that even though kind of carceral feminism in Me Too doesn't necessarily go as far as that the argument that we should also subject privileged white men to prison doesn't necessarily make that system any more humane. It's kind of a race to the bottom, isn't it? Yes. So let's get everyone locked up rather than let's dismantle the prison industrial system itself. Um, There's a few examples like that in the book where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was connected. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's good. You do a very um, extensive analysis of those links, which I think Mm. is really important because it it shows the web of, yeah, political whiteness and white feminism and how, yeah... No, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and definitely. when they see us, that series, everybody should watch it. And especially every white woman involved yes. in anti-sexual violence work should force herself to watch that. Yeah. Um, because I would, it's amazing. I would caveat that because slightly, because I know more black people than not that can't watch that, haven't yes. watched it. Yeah. And they haven't been able to watch it. And I have to, I sort of do respect that because I yeah. found it so hard no, to watch. I, I can't even imagine. It was like, and I'm not just, I think everyone finds, I think yeah. everyone finds it but it was just so. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I, if you can watch it, 
watch it. It's but as you yeah. say, it's very very important, particularly yeah. if you're involved in yeah. this activist work. If it's too painful to watch, then perhaps mm. do it over time. Or, yeah, or just don't. Yeah. No, I was thinking that because I mean I sobbed through the whole thing, I was, and I was thinking, you know, to be a black person watching yeah. this, it must be so painful yeah um yeah. but i do you know if especially if you're a white woman involved mm. in in activism around mm. rape mm. you know you have to confront that stuff mm. um mm. i mean they were just kids oh god it's just yeah it's too like i mean tiso he he won't want he's like i can't watch it yeah we could we could talk a lot about that yeah but, um can you give us a basically an overview of your arguments in the book okay Yes, I can. Yes. Um, so the I guess the central concept of, of the book is that concept of political whiteness. Um, and I know there's been a lot of discussion of white feminism recently mm-hmm. um, and white feminism kind of used to denote that feminism that kind of ignores the struggles, the politics, the writing of women of colour. Um, but I guess with political whiteness, I wanted to sort of go broader and deeper than that so I wanted to explore how white feminism is related to other forms of white politics the backlash against feminism but also more reactionary far-right politics even Mm. and and I also wanted to dig deeper into some of the I guess you would call them emotional or affective dynamics which underpin that political whiteness so the first of those is narcissism so focusing on white women's pain to the exclusion of everything else. Um, The second one is a kind of alertness to threat and that threatened whiteness is something that's around us all the time. You know, it's it's Brexit, it's Trump, it's, you know, it's the far right in Europe, but there's also a threatened white femininity, which is at the centre of white feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, And the threat to white women is almost always sexualized, I think. Um, And that has very deep colonial roots which we can talk about as well Um, and then the third thing is a kind of will to power or a desire for control um, which again you can see in Brexit in Trump in you know in the far right but also in the naming and shaming the desire to punish that is often so much a part of white feminism and I I do something which is probably quite risky and could be read in lots of different ways but could be read as being a bit unkind I suppose in linking that will to power to the experience of sexual violence So when you've been sexually violated, you do need to take back control and you're encouraged to take back control in a number of different ways. But when that becomes politicised, especially when it's filtered through privileged whiteness, then it becomes problematic Mm. because then it's about the kill list. You know, it's about bringing down the powerful men. So political whiteness is the books about the political whiteness of the mainstream feminist movement and by mainstream feminism I mean corporate feminism, university feminism, kind of mainstream media feminism but also some forms of social media feminism because social media well as you know it's Mm -hmm. quite a diverse space but white women do tend to dominate it quite a lot of the time so I try to kind of explore some of those dynamics through the movement and one of the dynamics I explore is that kind of process of naming and shaming investing our experiences in the outrage economy of the media um, and what that might do Um, and then also that kind of feminist anger because there's been a lot of discussion of women's anger or feminist anger and one of the questions I want to ask is well what do we mean by that what does that hide you know just saying women's anger um, because white women's anger can actually be quite problematic Mm. when it becomes political especially yeah 
One of the things that I was just thinking about then as you were talking, Alison, is how we differentiate these groups. Because sometimes I feel like you've got, as you talked about, like the liberal mainstream feminism, so you talk about the feminism like within universities, mm. the feminism that takes up a lot of space. Mm. And then we have this sort of weird quasi-feminism that sort of appeases patriarchy that you see on, like, the right-wing white feminists. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was watching, and it's made me think, actually, I was watching Jo Swinson talking this morning, mm-hmm. and I was like, do you know, do you see there's, like, these two groups? And I was like, she's really annoying me. Like, yes. and I was like, there's loads of reasons why she's annoying me that sort of relate to that sort of right-wing feminism as well as that liberal middle class like feminism as well it's like they sort of merge into do do you know what i'm do do you know what i'm saying like i know it's like right-wing feminists that i'm referring to would not class themselves as feminists but they came to care about femininity and protecting women's rights it makes people like isabel oakshot or something yeah and then you've got the as you talked about the liberal middle class university feminism and Mm. i feel like those people think they're really far apart yes but I sort of see a lot of them yeah. overlapping in what they, in the way they enact their feminism, which yeah. I think is what you talk a lot about in in the book. Yeah, it does yeah. make sense. And I think that is the role of whiteness. And I think, yeah. you know, once you start centering race, you do have to acknowledge that there are these continuities between what we might see as more progressive and more mm. reactionary politics that are dominated by mm. white people. Mm. Um, and that's one of the things I do in the book is to sort of trace the similarities between mainstream feminism and the backlash against it Mm. um, which again is quite a risky thing to do but um, I sort of think it needs to be explored who do you think is going to be who do you think is going to take the book not as well I don't know really I think yeah I don't know I, I guess it depends on how ready people are to kind of have those conversations um and i think that i think there's a willingness amongst a lot of white people to kind of interrogate whiteness to a certain level um and but then it doesn't sort of go beyond that um and i think the suggestion that you know white feminists might have something in common with piers morgan is you know perhaps something that people might find difficult to swallow and then obviously there'll be a massive backlash from the anti-trans anti-sex worker crowd Mm. um and unfortunately it feels like much of the mainstream sort of what we would call feminist media in this country is quite anti-trans which Mm. is really sad um i think i've been so like astounded over the past two years and that's me being very naive and very like just not catching up fast enough or maybe because i've always felt a tiny bit alienated from feminism but Mm. the anti-trans movement is just absolutely Mm. shocking but what i think shocks me the most about it is how it's embedded within so many of our institutions and just daily life and the appetite that people have to be so anti-trans i just find unbelievable to be honest it is Um, and i don't think you're naive because i think it has stepped up in the past couple of years yeah and i think it's part of that shift to the right has given Mm. that movement more opportunities more platforms Mm. more money you know because i really thought that um sort of in the early 2010s i really thought that we'd moved quite far on the trans issue Mm -hmm. and there was that cover of time magazine with laverne cox on it when what i can't remember what date that was you know maybe 2013 14 called the transgender tipping point it was wasn't it because it was Um, after she'd been in 
orange is the new black yes that's right yeah. Yeah. yeah and then after that it just started to bubble away a little bit more and obviously there's always been pockets of this but it just seems to be a lot more overt um and they're so well organized now mm. you know they're so well organized they're yeah. well funded they've got support from mps they've got platforms and you know in the right-wing press they've got a hotline to the sunday times it seems mm. um yeah so i don't think you are naive i really yeah. do think it's come up yeah. um you know and it's one of the things that you do in the book which i think is so integral to this is that you link that that just that hatred to racism as well yeah and i feel like a lot more people are doing that and i'm like oh wow yeah that's yeah. so interlinked like mm. um do you listen to busy being black by no. josh rivers oh my god it's so good it's such a good podcast listen to busy being black by josh okay. rivers and basically one of the things that he's done is spoken to people about this link to okay. anti-trans issues and racism and how we can't separate the two. Mm. Um, I'll have to send you the link to one of the specific episodes, which I think, yeah, really lays yeah, it, it out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's a profoundly racist politics. Yeah. I mean, you could see that as well in what happened with Munro Bergdorf, yes. right? Because that, um, shall I explain for the listener? Yeah, yes, for the listener. Course, for the listener. Um, yeah, um, Munro Bergdorf is a trans woman, model, activist, um, general, mm-hmm. lovely woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had been working with the NSPCC on one of their campaigns. And it emerged um, that she had been working with the NSPCC on one of their campaigns. And it, there was an immediate moral panic. Um, there was a a new organisation called the Safe Schools Alliance wrote a letter in which they said Bergdorf presents a pornified representation of femininity, blah, blah, blah. Um, Janice Turner then tweeted and kind of upped the ante and said Bergdorf was a porn model. Um, And that was kind of retweeted loads of times. And then the NSPCC cut all their ties with her. Um, And I write in the book that that, that's basically a case of walking while trans, Mm -hmm. you know, so that phrase was used after Monica Jones, who's a black trans woman in the US, was arrested um, for manifesting prostitution, um, basically. Um, And it's the same in this case. So because Munro Bergdorf is a black trans woman, she's automatically Mm over-sexualized because black women's bodies always are. Um, She's a porn model. um, And therefore, as well, she's a danger to children. Mm -hmm. So there's racism, there's transphobia, there's hatred of sex workers as well. Um, All of it together, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like a cocktail um, of awfulness basically and initially when you started talking about the NSPCC case I was like oh yeah there was that one I thought you were talking about the L'Oreal one at first as well oh yes when she first like was she was signed by L'Oreal then L'Oreal dropped her kept Cheryl Cole on Cheryl Cole on even though Cheryl Cole's beat up a black woman like it's just I know and again what you talk about very well in the book which is to do with this is selective outrage yeah and how civility and this respectability politics mm-hmm. is so linked to white supremacy. Very much so. Yeah, um, very much so. And that links the anti-trans and the anti-sex worker stuff because the anti-trans is, you know, the unnatural woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the anti-sex worker is the unrespectable woman. Neither of them are really real women, you know. So it's a deeply white and a deeply bourgeois politics as well, actually. It's kind of rooted in um, disdain for anybody that lives or 
has sex or thinks differently from the mainstream. Flavia Dodan, I'm not sure whether I've pronounced her name correctly, so I'm very sorry if I haven't, calls anti-trans feminism a settler colonial mentality because it's based on naming, categorising, you know, saying you can't be in our club. It's a policing of the borders of womanhood, of feminism. Um, And also these women are happy to be defended by these awful white men who reserve the right to abuse women themselves but then become all outraged when you know about the trans issues so um yeah i mean carl benjamin sargon of arkad or whatever his name is he did an interview with ukip about um the trans issue you know protector of woman women that he is and these anti-trans feminists are happy to take support from the most awful people i just don't understand it you know I was listening to a podcast with Travis Alabanza mm. the other day and they're just amazing. And yeah. they were talking about the link between um, co- colonialism, slavery, um, and anti- anti-trans movement and racism mm. and how the policing of gender yes. is so linked to colonialism. And they lay it out so eloquently. And I was like, on the Busy Being Black podcast. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> and... Um, I I saw that as well in your book Mm. and I was like oh my god this is so linked it really is it's so so linked well because colonialism needed to well enclose land it needed to kind of develop the means of production that it needed to Mm. um, to to do to survive so lands were subdivided you know extended communities were made into nuclear family communities women were put under the control of men um, you know these gender roles were imposed as part of the process of controlling people land production etc um, so while it sort of invented race um, well it didn't invent race mm. but it kind of systematically raced mm. populations colonialism imposed gender, gender. Um, you and, know and and people with genders that didn't fit that binary mm. were excluded um, victimized etc mm. um, so yeah it's a deeply deeply colonial project mm. Um, And they say that they're not gender essentialist, but they are, you know, because you can't check somebody's chromosomes before they go into a toilet. You really shouldn't pull down somebody's underpants before they go into a toilet. Um, So what are you doing? You're using gender codes to judge whether somebody belongs in that space or not. Um, So there's, I mean, you've probably seen there's been loads of cisgender women who look masculine, Mm. who've been challenged in women's toilets as a result of this moral panic. So it's, you know, it's gender essentialism dressed up in, you know, gender criticality. Mm-hmm. Definitely. One of the things I thought it'd be quite good to talk to you about as well, Alison, just to sort of break down, I think it's never been more important for us to sort of break down concepts and apply them to where we are now. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think you do quite, quite well in the book as well is sort of a, ge- a brief genealogy of feminism mm-hmm. and particularly that that's UK based mm-hmm. for now and then sort of dipping into the states, which you do throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain first wave, second wave, third wave, <laughs> and fourth wave? Oh, no, feminism. Okay. <laughs> I'll try, yes. I'll try. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that these are waves of white feminism, right? Yes. Um, so white feminism has kind of defined, you know, the wave model. So with that caveat, first wave is the kind of the suffrage movement, Um, So the suffragettes, the suffragists um, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, which happened at sort of similar times, slightly different, but um, but kind of concurrent Um, and also movements about women's health and women's education, um, which was dominated by 
privileged white women. I, you know, um, the film Mary Poppins always makes me laugh because their characterization of the suffragettes is just dead on, you know, um, very much in that vein. Um, so the second wave is what really started to emerge in the 1960s, um, and that was focused on more personal issues, rape, abortion, domestic violence, um, sexuality as well, um, and women's sexual pleasure. Um, and that had the slogan, the personal is political. So it was really kind of saying these, these are not private matters. Mm. Um, these gender is a political issue. Mm. Um, then the third wave and the second wave kind of had liberal and radical kind of elements. So in the first wave, basically liberal feminism. Um, when we get to the second wave, we see the emergence of radical feminism as well. Um, and we can talk about that more as well. Um, and then third wave, I don't know when, but people disagree on when the third yeah, wave yeah, started, yeah. don't they? I yeah. mean, some people say like 1990s. Um, and the third wave is kind of associated with um, a more neoliberal feminism, an emphasis on personal choice um, and women's empowerment, um, kind of women certain types of women gaining more success within the system mm -hmm. um, and being able to kind of speak out um, about things like equal pay promotions, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think the third wave, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite as sure about how I would define the third wave. Um, and then the fourth wave, as I've seen it defined, is more the kind of the internet, I think. Okay. Um, but, you know, with the caveat that alongside all of these waves of white femi feminism, you always had feminists of colour, black feminists kind of doing their own work. Mm. Um, and sometimes this coincided and sometimes it didn't. I mean, in the second wave of white feminism, you certainly had a kind of a black feminist movement, a movement of feminists of colour who were both critiquing the white mainstream, but they were also developing their own theories, their own politics. So they, they weren't just there to there to critique they were developing alternatives and of course you had women in the civil rights movement um, in the US um, who were active around rape particularly um, both kind of white men raping black women with impunity but also the way that allegations of rape were used as a means of racial terror so back to Ida B Wells but also Rosa Parks um, was an anti-rape activist before she was kind of the icon of the Montgomery bus boycott. And actually, there were at least two women, I think, who'd done what she'd done on the buses before she did it, refused to, refused to stand up. But they picked her because she was a respectable um, woman. Wow, and could be a good face for the movement. Well, there's think. a brilliant book by Danielle Maguire um, called At the Dark End of the Street, mm -hmm. and that's about um, women in the civil rights movement and the kind of the anti-rape activism um, within the civil rights movement. So you kind of got that, which predated second wave white feminism, and white feminists writing about rape, I think, borrowed quite a lot from their black mm -hmm. feminist sisters, but didn't give them any credit. Um, so the idea that rape Sounds is a structural familiar. thing, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then we can fast forward to Tarana Burke, you yeah. know. Um, yes, the idea that rape is a structural thing that you know black feminists were saying that from the from the nineteenth century and earlier, mm -hmm. um, and they were talking about rape as a means of gender terror, but also as a means of racialized terror. But when white feminists picked that up, they didn't then keep the focus on the allegations as well mm -hmm. so they just focused on acts and threats of sexual violence and how they kept women under control 
they missed the kind of focus on how allegations of sexual violence and the punishment of sexual violence um, kind of perpetrates other types of harms and oppressions. Yeah. It reminds me of um, in uh, Priyam Vardagopal's book, Insurgent mm. Empire, the way that we've been talking about this a little bit on this season, the way the West and particularly white supremacy claims universality on um, freedoms Mm. and who gets to fight for freedoms and that is not that happens in it's happened in feminism as well completely Um, yeah and the idea that white feminists can go and teach other women to be more feminist and you know that's the kind of colonial feminist thing isn't it you know the idea that we own feminism is just ridiculous it's just so like and we yeah we obviously we spoke about this on um, last week's episode of Angela Saini as well like if we begin to really unravel some of this stuff, it it sort of makes us question everything. Mm. And that is possibly why there is so much pushback against what we're all trying to do collectively now. Yeah. Knock on the establishment's door, knock on white supremacy's door. Yeah. If we really, really, really knock on it and they open the door and we start to have a look about what's inside and actually talk about what's inside, then everything as we know it it's right. do you know what I mean? Like, I never mean do you know what I mean it's, not, it's all over but like that's why they can't yeah. let they can't let us expose who or get up, get the majority to believe that everything is a lie basically because <laughs> yeah. it, it knocks down everything it does and I think that white women as well privileged white women who are feminists like to think that they're not part of the establishment or that we're not part of the establishment but we are yeah um, and I think that I mean, I do think it's difficult because when you've been sexually violated, mm-hmm. you have been victimised, yes. but then it's very difficult to see yourself as also a perpetrator yeah. of race supremacy, of class supremacy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's a real hesitation, or even maybe stronger than that, a real rejection of the idea that privileged white women could be anything but victims. Just on a bit of like a side note here, why do people not like talking about privilege? I could talk about my privilege all day. Yeah. I don't know. What is it? I think that, yeah. I mean, we could talk about white fragility here, couldn't we? Robin D'Angelo's concept, um, which she's she's written about and talked about quite extensively. And I think that there is a real white supremacy comes that fragility and that Mm. inability to kind of look at your privilege Mm. um, and maybe doubly so for white women because Mm. they have been dominated Mm -hmm. by white men um, so then it becomes even more difficult to admit that you are privileged over someone else Mm. yeah I don't know I mean I think with supremacy comes fragility um, and that's because supremacy kind of puts you up here doesn't it and then you farther to fall Mm. Um, and these kind of figures these white figures um, you know, the settler, the master, the factory owner, the um, the magnate, you know, they're all emblems of, mm-hmm. of conquest, subjugation. Um, and then there's always a risk that you might be overthrown, you might be deposed. And I think white women have historically, um, certainly bourgeois white women have historically gained power through the power of white men. Um, so they're deeply, deeply invested in white supremacy. Um, and I think Maria Lagone is, um, and again, I'm sorry if I'm making a hash of this name, talks about how white women can be even more invested in white supremacy because they, within capitalism, they lack generally, or we lack generally, 
the ownership of the means of production. Um, okay. So it becomes yeah. a form of power that you can have, yes, that you can control. Um, yeah. that you can control. That's um, powerful. But then you also feel victimised by your gender. So when somebody says, actually, you are privileged, then you get really defensive. Mm. Um, and then you kind of think you're being told it's your fault. And then you start crying. And then... Oh, you know. yeah. Don't get me started on those tears. Don't get me started on those tears. <laughs> um, I guess... It, it, it's making me think about what we were talking about before we started recording um, and sort of relating it back to um, the trans exclusionary radical feminists as well that are making a lot of leeway. Mm. Um, it's making me think about how some of those um, women were very important in terms of um, getting women's rights, basically, from mm. back in the day. Yes. Um, whether it be about domestic violence, abortion, all these things. They've mm. done a lot of that work, but now they're coming out sa- saying they mm. decide who a woman is. Yes. Or who is not a woman. Yes. And how we sort of grapple with that. How do we grapple with that contribution to feminism yeah. whilst also now policing feminism and womanhood? Yeah. What do we do? Like, how do we... How do we... Because... I mean, I don't, I, I, and it's not like I'm trying to play devils, I'm not trying to play devils advocate mm. here, I'm just sort mm. of speaking from what I think pe- people are, some people are feeling. It's like, these women have done some incredible things, but now they're doing some things which are just absolutely unspeakable. Mm. So, does it mean that we're just seeing a representation of the fluidity of humans and how everyone's <laughs> like, there's no one's good or bad, or, if, I don't I don't know, but I find it really, find it quite difficult, yeah. I think it is. I mean, I think that is part of it. Mm. You know, nobody is wholly good or wholly bad and we're all victims and perpetrators at the same time. Mm. Obviously, there are degrees of that. You know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that, you know, somebody who's perpetrated a rape is Mm. is the same as somebody who hasn't. But we all perpetrate different things. Um, I think that there are a lot of these women have done really good work. Um, and I don't think that that should be taken away from them. But I also think that that work has been limited and myopic in some cases. Yeah. So a lot of the work around sexual violence has been focused on criminalisation, mm-hmm. um, creating stronger laws, longer sentences, more police, more protection. Um, and more and more I see that demand for protection as being just inherently white. Yeah. You know, inherently white. Um stuff like abortion you know obviously abortion rights are really crucially important but you know the reproductive justice framework which you probably know all about anyway is is much broader than that and it's about you know forced sterilization you know having the means to actually raise a child if you want to have one all of which are issues that have affected women of color and other women disabled women Mm -hmm. um so i think that there were always the signs there we can say they did good work but we can also say they did good work for perhaps a certain type of woman who benefited more than other types of women. Um, And we can also say the roots of these current kind of trans-exclusionary, sex worker exclusionary discourses were always there. Um, And I think you can see that in the kind of the very early, I mean, the suffragettes, I mean, the let's just say what it is, the suffragettes were racist. Yes. You know, I mean, they kind of positioned votes for women as a way to avoid the system being overrun by black men or by by um 
working class white men mm-hmm. I say working class white rather than white working class because I don't like that idea of a white working class oh, we, hate, we hate that on this podcast yeah, as well no, don't worry about that yeah. kind of figure out how to express it yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you kind of they're working class and they also happen to be white and they happen to be white yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I say working class white yeah. um, you know so they were racist mm-hmm. you know some of them also supported quite eugenic policies where um, women of colour women from labouring social classes were sterilised mm-hmm. or were discouraged from mm-hmm. reproducing and then you get through to radical feminism which made massive strides in conceptualising rape as violence rather than sex mm-hmm. um, you know which led to lots of legal changes but which also saw women as a sex class mm-hmm. who um, were defined by our capacity to reproduce um, which again was a fundamentally white concept and which was co- called out at the time mm-hmm. right by black feminists in the Combahee River Collective and other groups who basically said you're erasing you know the oppression that we face as as women of color by saying that gender oppression is the oppression um so i think we kind of have to hold it all together i think that's what you're really good you know. at alison you're really good at recognizing the revisionism that so often that so often comes alongside of feminism yeah we just forget all these things that have happened that have been so exclusionary yes um and we yeah. can't it's, it's that in history is just so integral to understanding mm. where we are now yeah and who's been brought along the way and who yeah. hasn't been brought along the way definitely i was listening to um women's hour um i do sometimes because i need to hear i like honestly some of the things i listen to alison you'd be like why i i I listen to lbc i like to know what the other side is saying (laughs) i like to do that i don't i know i don't listen all the time but i like to just like sit on it i just want to hear what they're saying and um yeah women's hour they were talking about they had i think you'll know the organization the organization that works quite closely with the government um on women women's issues of domestic vi- violence and they were talking about women's um, aid or oh uh, it might have been women's aid and this guy that's just been given a knighthood that was a uh, cricketer jeffrey boycott that's right mm. oh my god so this guy this guy this guy <laughs> on, yeah. on, ch- on radio four so this yeah. women's aid have been like oh my god Theresa may has made so much important legislation when it oh. comes to domestic violence <laughs> and then it's given and then but they see their outrage is mm. obviously it's outrageous that he's been given this knighthood anyway yeah. but i don't give a shit about knighthood so like what yeah whatever, fuck, fuck yeah. empire but yeah. um yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is part of the job description of being a knight right that you have to brutalize women at some point so you know yeah <laughs> um sorry it's not it's it i'm laughing because it's just the, the in just embedded hypocrisy yeah. in um British politics and government anyway so women's aid are on the women's are and they're just outraged they're like mm. we said Theresa May had done all this stuff for mm. domestic violence but they've given us knighthood to this guy it's like so that's what you're outraged about yeah, yeah that is exactly. your outrage exactly and it's like th- this shock isn't it how could Theresa May do that well didn't you see the signs and it's the y- Yarl's Wood yes. you know and it's the lack of like attention like what you give in the book and also what you've been talking about today Alison is to the specifics surrounding the situation mm. so you're put, putting so Theresa May puts through this domestic violence bill which actually hasn't gone through because no. of fucking Brexit anyway yeah. mm. so Theresa May's done that you think that's amazing whilst at the same time mm. has been horrendous when it comes to um, immigration policy yes. horrendous when it comes to human rights horrendous when it comes to women working class women women's Absolutely. rights and has just completely obliterated the welfare state mm. and all these things 
will often equate to women experiencing more violence. Completely. So it's like, but which why women? Does, yeah, but we, exactly. So it's like not the women's hour women. Not the women's hour yeah. women. So yeah. like, oh my god, I'm so shocked. I never knew. <laughs> Well, you haven't been looking, you haven't been listening. You haven't been paying attention. You haven't been paying attention. And at the end of the day, I do feel like, like you talk about in the book as well, this selective outrage is only going to get some of these women to a certain point. Yeah. Like, this is going to come back and bite them in the bum because yeah. patriarchy is is, yeah. is very powerful. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Know. It will. It will. Um, and I think more and more people are now noticing that as well because... You know, the internet has been brilliant, hasn't it, for lifting up the voices of people mm -hmm. that don't normally get mm -hmm. those types of platforms. So mm -hmm. I do feel like the feminist conversation is becoming more diverse all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I got my education on the internet from, mm -hmm. you know, women of colour, sex workers, mm -hmm. trans women, women that fit all of those categories, mm -hmm. um, you know, and just listening to them. And mm -hmm. I guess that's, I mean, that's another reason for writing this book mm -hmm. um, not to say oh my politics are so great I'm finished I'm all done because I'm really not mm -hmm. um, but just to kind of say this is why I feel uncomfortable and to try and kind of reach out I suppose maybe I mean it's aimed at white women really yes. the book because I don't think women of colour are going to need to read it they know all this stuff already yeah um, yeah. You know, so it's really trying to reach out to white women who may also be feeling a bit uncomfortable, who may also be mm. kind of getting different information now and, and wondering what to do with it. Mm. Um, maybe kind of thinking maybe this naming and shaming and punishing is not the way to go. Mm. With the naming and shaming stuff, Alison, I feel like we're not, it's not finished yet. Mm. As in, I think they've still got, there's still going to be more names to come. There will be. That are going to, yeah, shock yeah. us or whatever. Yeah. It's quite interesting, though, talking to my nan, like, I love my nan to bits, um, and she's very, very important, like, parental figure when I was growing up. Um, and she went through a lot of, a lot of stuff growing up. She's 71 now, but she was in and out of care and whatnot. Um, and I remember when, like, all the stuff was coming out, like, you tree stuff, basically, mm, Operation yeah. Drugs coming, she was like, she wasn't shocked. She was like, "Yeah." Mm. She was like, "That this is this yeah. was this was normal." Yeah, and this was. She was like, "You've got to understand, Sean. There wasn't protection for us. There wasn't protection for us, and that we were anyone's." Yeah, and to hear, and she's someone that doesn't necessarily have. We don't necessarily have the same political opinions about mm. things and whatever. But it's just so interesting how that. Yeah, how the last sort of 15 years mm. has really brought some of that stuff to the surface, basically, like what so yeah. many women have gone through. Yeah. Um, and you can you can almost see... Oh, I'm not trying to defend the political whiteness that you talk about a lot, but I guess when you have been experienced that much pain mm. and abuse, you can, you can see why it would be difficult to recognize your privilege within that yeah i think that's right and especially if you've experienced the most horrendous forms of abuse mm -hmm. um i think it can be very very difficult mm -hmm. you know because that's the process as a survivor isn't it of you know you you do have to sort of identify yourself as a victim mm -hmm. to put the blame where it belongs mm -hmm. you know but then hopefully there's a process of kind of moving out of that and not mm -hmm. I, I mean i hate the victim to survivor thing you know yeah. that's really neoliberal but you know moving out of that so that you 
you still carry that pain, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily in the driving seat all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worry that sometimes it is in the driving seat all of the time. And then that's when that desire for control can become a bit problematic. And I don't want to go all cod psychology here either. Yeah. But I think there is something to do with control in our contemporary political landscape but the naming and shaming i mean like, yeah in the 70s it like it was everyone yeah you know i mean yeah you know i mean i was born in 76 and even that you know i remember when i was a teenager there was always that friend of your dad's that would try and kiss you on the lips oh, you know God, do you know what i mean yes, it's kind of, yes. <laughs> every oh, God, all the yeah, time yeah. all the time yeah. and so i think well if we name and shame we're gonna have to name and shame everyone yeah. and we're gonna have to fire everyone from their jobs and we're gonna have to put everyone yeah. in prison and then you know and that then goes it doesn't doesn't work work. and then that goes into the other thing that I talk about which is that sometimes it becomes almost a form of nimbyism you know especially in universities it's like we want these men out well okay where are they going to go okay that brings me on to something that I wanted to ask you um what I sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable with the the politics around this in universities Mm. And that's not because I don't think it's right, but I just don't feel like within this movement of basically talking about sexual assault within universities, like how it's it's coming to the surface more, how widespread it is. Yes. Why is it, why do you think it is that when I'm in these like events or or at conferences or whatever, and we're talking about this collectively as academics, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm there with you. Yeah. What yeah. is it? There's something about I don't know and I don't want to have I'm not having a go at like people have done some incredible work, like they're yeah. doing some really important stuff and if that stuff had been around when things were happening to me when I was an undergrad, mm. would I have sought help from them? Maybe not. Maybe not. So who's is it who's it for in a way? Yeah. I think that's the question. And it's I'm not targeting any individuals or anything like that. It's just more the movement as a general, like, mm. what, why is it that it makes me feel a bit uneasy? Yeah, I mean, and I'm there with you as well. Okay. Um, and I've felt uncomfortable about this for a while. In fact, I've withdrawn to a large extent from it because I'm yeah. not comfortable. I mean, I yeah, maybe it's for different reasons than yes. you. I'm not comfortable with the naming and shaming. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with people who claim to be against neoliberalism then demanding incredibly punitive systems, more league tables, more Athena Swan um, benchmarking schemes in order to deal with this, or taking away funding from universities that don't deal with it, because I kind of think, well, that's just going to punish universities that don't have enough money. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, oh my God. Exactly. so the ex-polys who don't have the resources are going to then get fired. It's a bit like the failing schools, isn't yeah. it? You know, they're going to get penalised. They're going to lose funding. Then they're going to have less resources. Then, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing kind of starts again. And the other thing is this nimbyism. So this idea of kind of sack the harassers, you know, often what happens is that we pass them on to other universities. But even if we were to get them out which of academia... Across, which is happening across the EPA. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But even if we were to get these men out of academia, what are we saying? Are we saying we want them in prison? Are we saying we want them on the streets? Yeah, where do we want them? Where do we want them? Because if we're saying... So, Mariam Kaber, who mm. I love, mm. says there's a difference between a punishment and a consequence, right? So, oh, nice. yeah, losing your job is a consequence, Never being able to work again is a punishment. So if you are going to say that um, we want these men to lose their jobs in universities, but we don't necessarily want them to never be able to work again, where are they going to work? 
Are they going to go and work in McDonald's? Are they going to go and work in, you know, I don't know, a garden centre where there's going to be other women there with less employment rights, less protections, maybe less kind of cultural capital? Yeah, we want them out of our elite institution. It's nimbyism, isn't it? It is. Oh, my God, some people are going to be like, I can't believe they've just said that. But you've you've just said... What that you've that you've just articulated why I'm uncomfortable with it. Have I? Okay. You have. Because that's why I'm uncomfortable as well. And I have said it before it's in very like difficult times. Con- it's like walking a tightrope. It, it is. It? It's um, very difficult. But and, um, yeah, that yeah. nimbyism is powerful because sometimes class is really missing from this yes, sort of thing. Um, and who has the capital to get their allegation heard? That's right. Um, or feel yeah. confident in their allegation or have the support around them for that allegation. And um, also I think the discussion around safeguarding and grooming and the demands for protection, like I said to you before, I feel like that demand for protection is intrinsically white. Mm. You know, that idea that you want a white knight or a, you know yeah. somebody to ride in and protect you. Mm. I'm not saying, oh, you should do it all yourself mm. either, but I'm saying that there's a kind of appeal to the white knight or the angry dad or, or whoever um, that I think comes out of whiteness. The last thing I want to say oh, is that I'm not, I'm not saying that survivors aren't entitled to spaces without perpetrators. Because if you don't do something with the perpetrator, then that becomes a form of exclusion of the survivor, of right? You know, I mean, I was raped in a small community and they all closed ranks, you know, so I had to go. Um, and that's what happens when you don't deal with it. So I'm certainly not saying that, you know, Professor Pervert should be allowed to continue to do what he does with impunity. But what I am saying is that we should think about this in a systemic way. Yes. We need to build capacity within con- institutions to have difficult conversations, mm-hmm. to maybe support people whose behaviours aren't completely off the charts to behave differently. Um, and then we need to think in really radical ways about where are these men going to go? Who Who's next on the hit list? How many of the men that lost their jobs because of Me Too have now got new ones? And they're even more angry and hate women even more. Yes. <laughs> this was amazing. Wow. I knew it would be. You're so inspiring. Oh, bless Guys, you. early, early oh. 2020, you need to get this book. We need to get this book, white women especially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll send you a copy. I'll give yes. you a signed copy to do a giveaway with as well. But um, I'll send oh, you a you copy too. That, yeah. Um, thank you for joining us for our first Alternative to Women's Hour for this academic year. Thank you, Alison. Thank you so much.